Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Best of Jack London. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Part 5, Chapters 1 and 2. And now, Chapter 1, The Long Trail. It was in the air. White Fang sensed the coming calamity, even before there was tangible evidence of it. In vague ways it was borne in upon him that a change was impending. He knew not how or why, yet he got his feel of the oncoming event from the gods themselves. In ways subtler than they knew, they betrayed their intentions to the wolf-dog that haunted the cabin stoop, and that, though he never came inside the cabin, knew what went on inside their brains. "'Listen to that, will you?' the dog-musher exclaimed at supper one night. Weed and Scott listened. Through the door came a low, anxious whine, like a sobbing under the breath that had just grown audible. Then came a long sniff as White Fang reassured himself that his god was still inside and had not yet taken himself off in mysterious and solitary flight. "'I do believe that wolf's on to you,' the dog-musher said. Weed and Scott looked across at his companion with eyes that almost pleaded, though this was given the lie by his words. "'What the devil can I do with a wolf in California?' he demanded. "'That's what I say,' Matt answered. "'What the devil can you do with a wolf in California?' But this did not satisfy Weed and Scott. The other seemed to be judging him in a non-committal sort of way. "'White man's dogs would have no show against him,' Scott went on. "'He'd kill them on sight. "'If he didn't bankrupt me with damage suits, "'the authorities would take him away from me and electrocute him.' "'Yeah, he's a downright murderer, I know,' was the dog musher's comment. "'Weedon Scott looked at him suspiciously. "'It would never do,' he said decisively. "'It would never do,' Matt concurred. "'Why, you'd have to hire a man especially to take care of him.' "'The other suspicion was allayed. "'He nodded cheerfully. "'In the silence that followed, "'the low, half-sobbing whine was heard at the door, "'and then the long, questing sniff. "'Well, there's no denying he thinks a hell of a lot of you,' "'Matt said. "'The other glared at him in sudden wrath. "'Damn it all, man! "'I know my own mind, and what's best.' "'I'm agreeing with you, only—' "'Only what?' Scott snapped out. "'Only—' The dog-musher began softly, then changed his mind and betrayed a rising anger of his own. "'Well, you needn't get so all fired up about it. Judging by your actions, one would think you didn't know your own mind.' Whedon Scott debated with himself for a while, and then said more gently, "'You are right, Matt. I don't know my own mind, and that's what's the trouble.' Why it, would, "'Why, it would be rank ridiculousness for me to take that dog along,' he broke out after another pause. "'I'm agreeing with you,' was Matt's answer, and again his employer was not quite satisfied with him. "'But how in the name of the great Sardanopolis he knows you're going is what gets me,' the dog musher continued innocently. "'It's beyond me, Matt,' Scott answered, with a mournful shake of the head." Then came the day when, through the open cabin door, White Fang saw the fatal grip on the floor and the love master packing things into it. Also there were comings and goings, and the erstwhile placid atmosphere of the cabin was vexed with strange perturbations and unrest. 
Here was indubitable evidence. White Fang had already scented it. He now reasoned it. His god was preparing for another flight, and since he had not taken him with him before, so now he could look to be left behind. That night he lifted the long wolf howl, as he had howled in his puppy days when he fled back from the wild to the village to find it banished and not but a rubbish heap to mark the site of Grey Beaver's teepee. So now he pointed his muzzle to the cold stars and told to them his woe. Inside the cabin the two men had just gone to bed. "'He's gone off his food again,' Matt remarked from his bunk. There was a grunt from Weed and Scott's bunk and a stir of blankets. "'From the way he cut up the other time you went away, I wouldn't wonder this time but what he died.' The blankets in the other bunk stirred irritably. "'Oh, shut up!' Scott cried out through the darkness. "'You nag worse than a woman.' "'I'm agreeing with you,' the dog musher answered, and Weed and Scott was not quite sure whether or not the other had snickered. The next day White Fang's anxiety and restlessness were even more pronounced. He dogged his master's heels whenever he left the cabin, and haunted the front stoop when he remained inside. Through the open door he could catch glimpses of the luggage on the floor. The grip had been joined by two large canvas bags and a box. Matt was rolling the master's blankets and fur robe inside a small tarpaulin. White Fang whined as he watched the operation. Later on two Indians arrived. He watched them closely as they shouldered the luggage and were led off down the hill by Matt, who carried the bedding and the grip. But White Fang did not follow them. The master was still in the cabin. After a time, Matt returned. The master came to the door and called White Fang inside. "'You poor devil,' he said gently, rubbing White Fang's ears and tapping his spine. "'I'm hitting the long trail, old man, where you cannot follow. Now give me a growl.' THE LAST GOOD GOODBYE GROWL. But White Fang refused to growl. Instead, and after a wistful, searching look, he snuggled in, burrowing his head out of sight between the master's arm and body. "'There she blows!' Matt cried. From the Yukon arose the hoarse bellowing of a river steamboat. "'You got the cottage short. Be sure and lock the front door. I'll go out the back. Get a move on.' The two doors slammed at the same moment, and Weed and Scott waited for Matt to come round to the front. From inside the door came a low whining and sobbing. Then there were long, deep-drawn sniffs. "'You must take good care of him, Matt,' Scott said, as they started down the hill. "'Right, and let me know how he gets along.' "'Sure,' the dog musher answered. "'But listen to that, will you?' Both men stopped. White Fang was howling as dogs howl when their masters lie dead. He was voicing in utter woe, his cry bursting upward in great, heartbreaking rushes, dying down into quavering misery, and bursting upward again with a rush upon rush of grief. The Aurora was the first steamboat of the year for the outside, and her decks were jammed with prosperous adventurers and broken gold seekers, all equally as mad to get to the outside as they'd been originally to get to the inside. Near the gangplank, Scott was shaking hands with Matt, who was preparing to go ashore. But Matt's hand went limp in the other's grasp as his gaze shot past and remained fixed on something behind him. Scott turned to see. Sitting on the deck several feet away and watching wistfully was White Fang. The dog musher swore softly in awestruck accents. 
Scott could only look in wonder. "'Did you lock the front door?' Matt demanded. The other nodded and asked, "'How about the back?' "'You just bet I did,' was the fervent reply. White Fang flattened his ears ingratiatingly, but remained where he was, making no attempt to approach. "'I'll have to take him ashore with me.' Matt made a couple of steps toward White Fang, but the latter slid away from him. The dog musher made a rush of it, and White Fang dodged between the legs of a group of men. Ducking, turning, doubling, he slid about the deck, eluding the other's efforts to capture him. But when the love master spoke, White Fang came to him with prompt obedience. "'Won't come to the hand that's fed him all these months,' the dog musher muttered resentfully. "'And you! You ain't never fed him after the first days of getting acquainted. I'm blamed if I can see how it works out that you're the boss.' Scott, who had been patting White Fang, suddenly bent closer and pointed out fresh-made cuts on his muzzle and a gasp between the eyes. Matt bent over and passed his hand along White Fang's belly. "'We plump forgot the window. He's all cut and gouged underneath. He must have butted clean through it, by gosh!' But Weed and Scott was not listening. He was thinking rapidly. The Aurora's whistle hooted a final announcement of departure. Men were scurrying down the gangplank to the shore. Matt loosened the bandana from his own neck and started to put it around White Fang's. Scott grasped the dog musher's hand. "'Goodbye, Matt, old man. About the wolf? You needn't write. You see, I've—' "'What?' the dog musher exploded. "'You don't mean to say—' "'The very thing I mean. Here's your bandana. I'll write to you about him.' Matt paused halfway down the gangplank. "'He'll never stand the climate.' Unless you, cl "'Unless you clip him in warm weather.' "'The gangplank was hauled in, "'and the Aurora swung out from the bank. "'Weed and Scott waved a last goodbye. "'Then he turned and bent over White Fang, "'standing by his side. "'Now growl, damn you! Growl!' "'He said, as he patted the responsive head "'and rubbed the flattening ears. "'We'll return with Chapter 2 "'right after these sponsor messages.' Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now chapter two of White Fang, The Southland. White Fang landed from the steamer in San Francisco. He was appalled. Deep in him, below any reasoning process or active consciousness, he had associated power with Godhead. It never had the white men seemed such marvelous gods as now, when he trod the slimy pavement of San Francisco. The log cabins he had known were replaced by towering buildings. The streets were crowded with perils, wagons, carts, automobiles, great 
straining horses, pulling huge trucks, and monstrous cable and electric cars, hooting and clanging through the midst, screeching their insistent menace after the manner of the lynxes he had known in the northern woods. All this was the manifestation of power. Through it all, behind it all, was man, governing and controlling, expressing himself, as of old, by his mastery over matter. It was colossal, stunning. White Fang was awed. Fear sat upon him. As in his cubhood, he had been made to feel his smallness and puniness on the day he first came in from the wild to the village of Grey Beaver. So now, in his full-grown stature and pride of strength, he was made to feel small and puny. And there were so many gods. He was made dizzy by the swarming of them. The thunder of the streets smote upon his ears. He was bewildered by the tremendous and endless rush and movement of things. As never before, he felt his dependence on the love-master, close at whose heels he followed, no matter what happened, never losing sight of him. But White Fang was to have no more than a nightmare vision of the city, an experience that was like a bad dream, unreal and terrible, that haunted him for long after in his dreams. He was put into a baggage car by the master, chained in a corner in the midst of heaped trunks and valises. Here a squat and brawny god held sway, with much noise, hurling trunks and boxes about, dragging them in through the door and tossing them into the piles, or flinging them out of the door, smashing and crashing to other gods who awaited them. And here, in this inferno of luggage, was White Fang deserted by the master. Or at least White Fang thought he was deserted, until he smelled out the master's canvas clothes bags alongside of him and proceeded to mount guard over them. "'About time you come,' growled the god of the car an hour later, when Weed and Scott appeared at the door. "'That dog of yourn won't let me lay a finger on your stuff.' White Fang emerged from the car. He was astonished. The nightmare city was gone. The city had been to him no more than a room in a house, and when he had entered it the city had been all around him. In the interval the city had disappeared. The roar of it no longer dinned upon his ears. Before him was smiling country, streaming with sunshine, lazy with quietude. But he had little time to marvel at the transformation. He accepted it as he accepted all the unaccountable doings and manifestations of the gods. It was their way. There was a carriage waiting. A man and a woman approached the master. The woman's arms went out and clutched the master around the neck. A hostile act. The next moment, Weed and Scott had torn loose from the embrace and closed with White Fang, who had become a snarling, raging demon. "'It's all right, mother,' Scott was saying, as he kept tight hold of White Fang and placated him. He thought you were going to injure me, and he wouldn't stand for it. It's all right. It's all right. He'll learn soon enough.' "'And in the meantime, I may be permitted to love my son when his dog is not around,' she laughed, though she was pale and weak from the fright." She looked at White Fang, who snarled and bristled and glared malevolently. "'He'll have to learn, and he shall, without postponement,' Scott said. He spoke softly to White Fang until he had quieted him, then his voice became firm. "'Down, sir, down with you!' This had been one of the things taught him by the master, and White Fang obeyed, though he lay down reluctantly and sullenly. "'Now, mother!' Scott opened his arms to her, but kept his eyes on White Fang. "'Down!' he warned. "'Down!' White Fang, bristling silently, 
half crouching as he rose, sank back and watched the hostile act repeated. But no harm came of it, nor of the embrace from the strange man-god that followed. Then the clothes bags were taken into the carriage, the strange gods and the love-master followed, and White Fang pursued, now running vigilantly behind, now bristling up to the running horses, and warning them that he was there to see that no harm befell the god they dragged so swiftly across the earth. At the end of fifteen minutes, the carriage swung in through a stone gateway, and on between a double row of arched and interlacing walnut trees. On either side stretched lawns, their broad sweep broken here and there by great sturdy-limbed oaks. In the near distance, in contrast with the young green of the tented grass, sunburned hayfields showed tan and gold, while beyond were the tawny hills and upland pastures. From the head of the lawn, on the first soft swell from the valley level, looked down the deep-porched, many-windowed house. Little opportunity was given White Fang to see all this. Hardly had the carriage entered the grounds, when he was set upon by a sheepdog, bright-eyed, sharp-muzzled, righteously indignant, and angry. It was between him and the master, cutting him off. White Fang snarled no warning, but his hair bristled as he made his silent and deadly rush. This rush was never completed. He halted with awkward abruptness, with stiff forelegs bracing himself against his momentum, almost sitting down on his haunches, so desirous was he of avoiding contact with the dog he was in the act of attacking. It was a female, and the law of his kind thrust a barrier between. For him to attack her would require nothing less than a violation of his instinct. But with the sheepdog it was otherwise. Being a female, she possessed no such instinct. On the other hand, being a sheepdog, her instinctive fear of the wild, and especially of the wolf, was unusually keen. White Fang was to her a wolf, the hereditary marauder who had preyed upon her flocks from the time sheep were first herded and guarded by some dim ancestor of hers. And so, as he abandoned his rush at her and braced himself to avoid the contact, she sprang upon him. He snarled involuntarily as he felt her teeth in his shoulder, but beyond this made no offer to hurt her. He backed away, stiff-legged with self-consciousness, and tried to go around her. He dodged this way and that, and curved and turned, but to no purpose. She remained always between him and the way he wanted to go. "'Here, Collie!' called the strange man in the carriage. Whedon Scott laughed. "'Never mind, Father. It's good discipline. White Fang will have to learn many things, and it's just as well he begins now. He'll adjust himself all right.' The carriage drove on, and still Collie blocked White Fang's way. He tried to outrun her by leaving the drive and circling across the lawn, but she ran on the inner and smaller circle, and was always there, facing him with her two rows of gleaming teeth. Back he circled, across the drive to the other lawn, and again she headed him off. The carriage was bearing the master away. White Fang caught glimpses of it disappearing amongst the trees. The situation was desperate. He essayed another circle. She followed, running swiftly, and then suddenly... He turned upon her. It was his old fighting trick. Shoulder to shoulder, he struck her squarely. Not only was she overthrown, so fast had she been running that she rolled along, now on her back, now on her side, as she struggled to stop, clawing gravel with her feet and crying shrilly her hurt pride and indignation. White Fang didn't wait to watch. The way was clear, and that was all he had wanted. 
she took after him, never ceasing her outcry. It was the straightaway now, and when it came to real running, White Fang could teach her things. She ran frantically, hysterically, straining to the utmost, advertising the effort she was making with every leap, and all the time White Fang slid smoothly away from her, silently, without effort, gliding like a ghost over the ground. As he rounded the house to the poor cocher, he came upon the carriage. It had stopped, and the master was alighting. At this moment, still running at top speed, White Fang became suddenly aware of an attack from the side. It was a deerhound rushing upon him. White Fang tried to face it, but he was going too fast, and the hound was too close. It struck him on the side, and such was his forward momentum and the unexpectedness of it. White Fang was hurled to the ground and rolled clear over. He came out of the tangle a spectacle of malignancy, ears flattened back, lips writhing, nose wrinkling, his teeth clipping together as the fangs barely missed the hound's soft throat. The master was running up, but was too far away, and it was Collie that saved the hound's life. Before White Fang could spring in and deliver the fatal stroke, and just as he was in the act of springing in, Collie arrived. She had been outmaneuvered and outrun, to say nothing of her having been unceremoniously tumbled in the gravel, and her arrival was like that of a tornado, made up of offended dignity, justifiable wrath, and instinctive hatred for this marauder from the wild. She struck White Fang at right angles in the midst of his spring, and again he was knocked off his feet and rolled over. The next moment the master arrived, and with one hand held White Fang, while the father called up the dogs. "'I say, this is a pretty warm reception for a poor lone wolf from the Arctic,' the master said, while White Fang calmed down under his caressing hand. "'In all his life he's only been known once to go off his feet, and here he's been rolled twice in thirty seconds.' The carriage had driven away, and other strange gods had appeared from out of the house. Some of these stood respectfully at a distance, but two of them, women, perpetrated the hostile act of clutching the master around the neck. White Fang, however, was beginning to tolerate this act. No harm seemed to come of it, while the noises the gods made were certainly not threatening. These gods also made overtures to White Fang, but he warned them off with a snarl, and the master did likewise with word of mouth. At such times White Fang leaned in close against the master's leg and received reassuring pats on the head. The hound, under the command, Dick, lie down, sir, had gone up the steps and lain down to one side of the porch, still growling and keeping a sullen watch on the intruder. Collie had been taken in charge by one of the women gods, who held arms around her neck and petted and caressed her. But Collie was very much perplexed and worried, whining and restless, outraged by the permitted presence of this wolf and confident that the gods were making a mistake. All the gods started up the steps to enter the house. White Fang followed closely at the master's heels. Dick on the porch growled, and White Fang, on the steps, bristled and growled back. "'Take Collie inside and leave the two of them to fight it out,' suggested Scott's father. "'After that they'll be friends.' "'Then White Fang, to show his friendship, will have to be the chief mourner at the funeral,' laughed the master. The elder Scott looked incredulously, first at White Fang, then at Dick, and finally at his son. "'You mean?' Weed nodded his head. "'I mean just that. "'You'll have a dead dick inside one minute. two minutes at the farthest.' "'He turned to White Fang. "'Come on, you wolf. "'It's you that'll have to come inside.' 
White Fang walked stiff-legged up the steps and across the porch, with tail rigidly erect, keeping his eyes on Dick to guard against a flank attack, and at the same time prepared for whatever fierce manifestation of the unknown that might pounce out upon him from the interior of the home. But no thing of fear pounced out. And when he had gained the inside, he scouted carefully around, looking at it and finding it not. Then he lay down with a contented grunt at the master's feet, observing all that went on, ever ready to spring to his feet and fight for life with the terrors he felt must lurk under the trap roof of the dwelling. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters from Jack London's White Fang. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Best of Jack London. Please do share our show with a friend. And we'll be back next Sunday at 12 p.m. noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.